Welcome to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. This is the podcast designed to help you lead your life enthusiastically today, tomorrow, and every other day of your life. I am your host, Ron Kaiser. I'm a positive health psychologist and also author of the best-selling and award-winning book, Rejuvenating the Art and Science of Growing Older with Enthusiasm. My website is www.thementalhealthgym. I hope you'll visit frequently for information about positive psychology, goal-achieving psychology, lots of new developments in the field, and I hope you'll visit to make comments and even recommend future speakers. Today, our speaker is really unusual in terms of background and accomplishments. I'm going to tell you a little bit about John Spence. And after I tell you, if I'm not too intimidated, we'll continue with the podcast. John Spence is widely recognized as one of the top business and leadership development experts in the world. At 26 years of age, John was appointed as CEO of an international Rockefeller Foundation, overseeing projects across 20 countries. Just two years later, Inc. Magazine named him one of America's up-and-coming young business leaders. John is also recognized as one of the top 100 business thought leaders in America, one of the top 100 small business influencers in America, one of the top five small business experts in America, and one of the top 500 leadership development experts in the world. See what I said about being intimidated? The American Management Association also named him one of America's top 50 leaders to watch. And John is named by Inc. Magazine as one of the 100 best leadership speakers for your conference. I feel especially proud to be able to bring him to you because in most cases, if you get to hear John Spence, it means that somebody paid five figures to get him there to talk. So really, uh, it's a pleasure. John is the author of four books and co-author of several more a business consultant, workshop facilitator, keynote speaker, and executive coach with a client list that includes Fortune 500 firms, small businesses, professional associations, government and academic institutions. John's areas of expertise include leadership, high-performance teams, managing change, organizational culture, strategic thinking, strategic planning, and execution, and the future of business. John has built his entire career on making the very complex, awesomely simple, which is also the name of his best-selling book. I should point out one thing that isn't in his resume, but John is usually not only the smartest person in the room when he comes in there, but also the nicest. So John, Welcome to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. I am honored to have you as a guest on our podcast. Now, I'm very honored to be here, and I'm really looking forward to chatting with you, Ron. Let's get started then. As I kind of indicated, you wear many hats in the business and leadership area. I suspect you didn't have the most typical evolution of somebody going to college, getting a business degree, and then moving forward like to hear about your journey to get to your special place in leadership and business circles. It wasn't a straight path, that's for sure. I grew up in Miami, Florida, and my father was a very prominent malpractice attorney. Wealthy family, I went to prep school, 
did real well in prep school, got admitted to a lot of different universities. And I chose the University of Miami, Miami, Florida, because it was close to my boat and my girlfriend, which isn't exactly why you should choose college, which is why uh, about four semesters later, I failed out with a 1.6 GPA. Now, it's bad enough to fail out of college, but a few other elements made it worse is my father's one of the top alumni to ever graduate from the University of Miami. The year I get kicked out, he was on the board of directors. And there was a building of the law school named after him. So you really got to try hard to uh, get kicked out of a college where there's a building named after your family. So I regrouped and I had some friends that were going to the University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida, where I live now. And I decided I'd come up here and go to the University of Florida. Unfortunately, they didn't particularly want me. When I went to register, literally the woman behind the counter, and this is one of the big change points in my life laughed at me, literally laughed at me and said, we don't take people like you. So I had to go apply to a local community college, did well there, got good grades, went on, did get admitted to the University of Florida and graduated number three in the United States in my major. And as you mentioned, just, oh boy, it would have been three years, four years out of college, I was named CEO of the Rockefeller Foundation that I used to run. So the path wasn't very straight. There was a lot of ups and downs but it did get me to some place that allowed me to build a pretty strong career off that. Well, that should be encouraging to people who may not have gotten the greatest of starts themselves. And I guess I'm wondering what kind of made you decide, hey, uh, I mean, you're, you're a decent-sized guy instead of laying bricks or working construction or stuff like this, that I should go back and give this college stuff a try and actually move into a field that was very competitive. Great question. No one's ever asked me that before. I had dreams of running companies. I wanted to travel around the world. I had seen because of my background what wealth or opportunities were available, and I didn't want to squander those. Like I said, I had dreams of traveling around the world, of running companies, of doing cool things. Now, I will say that when I was kicked out of the University of Miami, I was also kicked out of my family. And one of the other things that turned around is I realized that no one else was going to fix this for me that my parents weren't going to help me and my friends couldn't help me. And the only way I was going to turn this around is I had to help myself. And that's when I sort of got on a mission of trying to understand the idea of success and how to build a successful life and career. Yeah, and as I mentioned, there are many things that you do. What's a typical workday or work week for you, for those of us who you're a consultant, author, leadership coach, things of this nature. How do you organize yourself and, and do all those things? It varies from week to week. In a normal year, or let's just say up until last year, I traveled usually about 200 to 220 days a year. My wife and I don't have children, and my wife is my business partner, so it's a wonderful lifestyle business for us. We did two full trips around the world in 12 countries. This year's changed a little bit, though as I've started to do more executive coaching. So a normal week for me is I work seven days a week. My goal is I work, I work until I'm so tired, I can't stand it. And then I vacation until I'm so bored, I can't stand it. I love what I do. And a typical day like today, I started off coaching a CEO in London, nine o'clock my time, five o'clock his time. I've been working on building slide decks all day for a big speech I'm giving in a couple weeks to about 600 female executives. I'll be doing shooting videos this afternoon for a course that I'm teaching. Next week, I leave to do two major keynote speeches, one in 
San Antonio, one in Clearwater. And then the next week, I'll be teaching at the Wharton School of Business at an executive level class for senior bankers from around the world. And it's my 20th year doing that. So I've got CEO coaching, training, teaching, travel, (laughs) and all that sort of stuff. And then I'll come home and take a week off to do other things. Do you work from crisis to crisis, or are you that organized that you planned ahead, that you know what you're going to be saying at Wharton? Or how do you prepare so that you're both responsive to all the various demands, but also presumably not driving yourself crazy before each each thing that you do. Luckily, we have someone on our team that wrangles me (laughs) and sends me to-do lists and stuff. But I normally prepare for something months in advance. Like I sent all my slides and everything to Wharton two months ago and all the workbooks and everything. So right now, the only thing for most of my programs, what I'm doing, I read about an hour to an hour and a half every morning to keep up with all the latest business stuff that's going on. I read about 100 to 120 business books a year, and I have every year since 1989. What I'm doing is I'm constantly trying to tweak and make my programs a little bit better, learn something new, adjust something. So my 90%, 95% will be done 60 or 90 days out. And then that last 5 or 10% will be actually the last week or the last few days before I go to present. And I'm really good about something, which is if I delegate something, it ceases to exist in my life. So I have people that I can trust that I just give them stuff. And after I give it to them, I I never think about it again. I know it's going to be done well. I don't need to spend any energy or effort on it. So that allows me to keep pretty focused on only the areas that I can add value. Well, I'm not going to enumerate them, but I just heard about five things that I'm doing wrong. And (laughs) I got to try to uh, see if I can do a little better and and stay on top of things. Because, I mean, that's really admirable. Thank you. Now, I know, and I do want a part of the podcast uh, looking at ideas about business and leadership and so on, but I think I've heard that you also are into kind of the life planning strategies for success thing that, that may have more general application to people who even aren't in the business field. Yeah, this is something that I never planned to teach. I've taught it to over a quarter of a million people around the world from the Fortune 3 for, you know, Microsoft, Apple, companies like that, down to over 90 colleges and universities around the world. And the way this came about is when I failed out the first try, I sat down and created a workbook for myself, you know, a strategic life plan for myself. I outlined a couple of key things that I thought were critical for me to be able to get my life back on track and keep it on track. And one of my friends one day, when I was in college, I owned an advertising firm. I started my own advertising firm while I was a junior in college. I was the dean's teaching assistant. I taught karate and I played on the rugby team, had plenty of fun and still kept straight A's in all my classes. So one of my friends said, how do you do that? And I showed him my success handbook and he went, wow, can you teach that to me? Fast forward to more people, more people, more people. So there's a couple of core things that I think are essential for someone to have a successful life. Well, one of them is, what is your personal definition of success? And it might change throughout your life, but it's hard to feel successful if you can't define it. So one of the things I do in that workshop is ask people to write their own personal definition of success. Number two is I ask people to to write out their core values. And it's fascinating to me, Ron, that I teach this at Wharton too to the senior executives. I'll have 120 senior executives in my class in their 50s, 
all helping running multi-billion dollar companies. And I will ask them, how many of you currently have a written list of your personal core values that you use to live your life by on a daily basis and to make all the major decisions in your life? And out of 120, usually one hand goes up. Hmm. And it's surprising to me that I, I get to people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s that have never sat back and actually thought, what are the values that drive my life? And there's a quote I love with this. Uh, it's a Walt Disney quote. When values are clear, decisions are easy. It works in organizations. It works in your personal life. Another big thing I talk about is the most important thing I've ever learned in my life, which is you become what you focus on and like the people you spend time with. So another thing I ask people to do is write down, what are you focused on right now? What do you spend your time on? Who do you spend your time with? And then step back and rate those things. Am I spending my time in a way that's going to make me happy and joyful and healthy? And am I spending my time with people that are enthusiastic and supportive and healthy and joyful? So that's a big part of what I ask people to focus on too is how do you spend your time? Who do you spend your time with? What are your core values? What's your personal definition of success? What is your personal mission? Mine's very clear. I've dedicated my life to helping businesses and people be more successful. That's everything that I focus on every day. I look at that as my mission in life. And again, it'll change. As I get older, I probably will continue to do that, but I'll probably focus a little bit more on contribution and giving back than I am right now, although I, I try to do that as much as I possibly can. That's so interesting. And it's it's actually kind of paradoxical to how people get caught up in their lives. In other words, for many people, advancement is really adapting to somebody else's core values and trying to get ahead and meet their objectives. And it sounds like you're saying that if we can really identify our core values and move forward, we've got a lot better chance of being successful, however we define it, than really letting somebody else define that for us. It's fascinating. In the American culture, and I, I travel worldwide, this isn't the same in every other culture, but in the American culture, we typically define success as money, fame, and power. I want to be really rich, very famous, and have the ability to have a lot of power or influence. That is not my definition of success. Mine is when your self-concept and core values are in harmony with your daily actions and behaviors. In other words, when you thought deeply about what you value most in your life, what's critical to the person you are, and you've got a clear picture of the life you want to have, and you actually live that. If you become rich, famous, and powerful, you got a private island in the Bahamas, fantastic. If that is not what you value, if you value art or music or contribution or something else like that, and it has nothing to do with being rich, famous, and powerful, but you can put your head on your pillow at night and say, I'm living my values, and I'm living the life that I want to create for myself, then to me, you're massively successful. Now, I know your background is in business, and you've written the bestseller, Awesomely Simple. For those of us who struggle through Econ 101 uh, <laughs> and weren't business majors, to hear a business-related book with the title of Awesomely Simple seems kind of paradoxical. Can you kind of give us the short course of what the book is about and what you're teaching in the business world. I'll give you a short, quick overview of the book in a second, but let me tell you how I learned to make complex things simple. Years ago, I read a book called The Cambridge Handbook of Expertise and Expert Performance, a 1,300-page book written by experts about how to become an expert. Hmm. And I'll save you the reading. <laughs> it basically got down to four Ps. 
four things that it takes to become among the best in the world. And you were kind enough in the introduction to mention that I've been named in the top 100 in the world in a couple areas. So at least I feel comfortable talking about this since I've followed the, this path. So four things. First one is passion. And it's pretty straightforward. It would be hard to be successful at something if you weren't passionate about it. You're not going to become among the best in the world at anything you don't enjoy like love. So passion. The next one is persistence. A lot of the research, you've probably seen this research, says it's about 10 years or 10,000 hours to be in the top in the world. It's about seven years or 7,000 hours to be in the top one to 5%. So it takes a long time. The third one is practice, but it's a special kind of practice. It's called deliberate practice. And what deliberate practice says is I've got a coach, a colleague, a friend, a trainer, somebody pushing me to get better and better and better at what I do, whether it's learning to paint or be an athlete or learning music or whatever, but I have someone there helping me and always pushing me to a higher level, which leads to the fourth and final P, which is what I think is sort of something I'm very good at, is pattern recognition. And to me, that's the foundation of understanding a topic at a very deep level and being able to take complexity and turn it into simplicity. One of the things that people ask me all the time is, you know, John, if you're reading all these business books, they must get redundant. And I say, yeah, they do. They get really redundant, which is excellent because out of all that stuff, I've discovered the pattern. So if I've got to give a speech on, let's say I've got a new one I'm putting together on, I forget, let's just say I've got one on strategic thinking I'm doing. I'll read three or 4,000 pages on strategy and look for the pattern that runs through all of it. And then I'll take that pattern and get it down to four or five or six key ideas and teach us those ideas. So I can take thousands of pages or hundreds of books and get it down to maybe one page of key ideas that is the pattern that runs through all of them. So that's what I did with business. And I won't go into a lot of depth on this one, but the pattern I've discovered of what great organizations, any kind of organization, nonprofit, religious, whatever it is, to be a good organization, there's four major things. First one is talent. Whoever has the best people wins. It's all about people, people, people. The next one is culture. I have to have a culture of integrity and honesty and transparency and fun and excellence and things like that that will take those very talented people and get them highly engaged. Number three is extreme customer focus. We have to understand who we're serving. And actually in a business or in an organization, the leader serves the employees and the employees serve the customers. There's a a phrase I love is the customer's experience will never exceed the employee's experience. So after that, we want extreme customer focus. The phrase I use for this one is whoever owns the voice of the customer owns the marketplace. And then the last one, number four, is disciplined execution. Another word you could use there is accountability. So when I look at laying the foundation of a world-class organization of any kind, got to have great people, got to have a culture that engages those people, need to be really, really close to your customer, and then you have to be able to consistently execute with excellence on those first three things. Well, I'm sure this is really new to a lot of people, and uh, one of the reasons that probably differentiate the firms or companies that do really well is the fact that there is a discipline and a disciplined approach to learning all this stuff. And again, I, I mean, the fact that you say you read 100 to 120 business books a year, 
you know, kind of shows it doesn't happen by accident. Now, well, let's reverse it around, Ron. How many books do you think the average college graduate reads per year for self-improvement or to get better at their job, to handle stress or anxiety, handle conflict, be a better leader, be a better team member, understand how to sell more per year, what I call a, a skills development book per year after they graduate from college? I would guess no more than three to five. Point five. What? Yep, point five. So here's the interesting challenge. If you were to read one book every other month, one skills development book every other month, six a year, you're in the top 1% in the United States of America. If you were to read one a month, you're in the top 1% on the face of the earth. So my IQ is not necessarily off the the charts, but because I've read three or 4,000 of it, you're looking at this, this is one of 11 bookcases in my office. Because I've read that much, I just have access to more information. It's not that I'm particularly brilliant. I just have a broader scope of ideas and information to draw from. And it's not just books, you know, it's audiobooks, podcasts like yours, YouTube videos, any way you're learning. If you invested 12 minutes a day for the week, that's an hour a week. At an hour a week, you are way ahead of the typical person. So, you know, we looked at becoming best in the world as 10,000, 10 years or 10,000 hours. 12 books a year puts you in the top 1% in the world for self-learning. That's not a super high bar. Especially these days where there's so many ways you can, you can learn from, you know, traditional books, e-books, the internet, audio books. I mean... I mean, you almost have to feel guilty if you're not reading more than 0.5 books. <laughs> well, and also, I just gave a big talk on the future of leadership and the future of business. And one of the things that we're seeing, you know, clearly is that you have to dedicate yourself to lifelong learning for two reasons. One, if you're in your career phase, that's the only way to stay relevant. And two, if you're older, it's the only way to keep your brain working really, really well. I mean, I, I think. When I meet people who are along in years, but they're still reading and they're active and they're, you know, having discussions with other people and keeping involved in their community, they always seem 10 or 15 years younger than I think they are. And in many ways, as I've learned in, in my work, their brains actually are younger than, than their chronological age. As somebody who fits into that category uh, age-wise, you want to have as much going for you when you get older as possible because it's, it's a lot more enjoyable life than the alternatives. Which brings me to the, the question of a lot of us have gotten kind of thrust into leadership positions either at work or even in retirement. People mm-hmm. who obviously have some kind of a spark that's picked up by other people and some kind of a desire, but they don't have training in that. You know, and what made you a good something, uh, whatever your your field was, wasn't necessarily because of your leadership skills. And I'm wondering, somebody who is interested, regardless of where they are in the lifespan, interested in learning more about leadership, are there some principles or things that are applicable to people who are, as I said, have been thrust into leadership without the background for it? Yeah. Several years ago, I did a research study of more than 10,000 high potential employees at top companies around the world or top organizations, the people that are being groomed to take over the organization. 
And I went to them and asked them a question. And the question was, what are the characteristics of a leader you would willingly follow? What does an ideal leader look like to you? And they came back with seven things, which I, to make them not complex and simple, I got them down to all starting with a C. So the seven C's of leadership. And here they are. The first one is character. Straightforward, tell the truth all the time, period. Character, integrity, honesty. Without that, there is no leadership. And surprisingly, not everybody has that skill and has to work on being authentic and transparent and being a servant leader and telling the truth. The next one is competence. And competence doesn't mean you have to be a genius and know how to do everything in the organization. It just means you need to be good at two things. Whatever your job function is, your role in the organization, and your leadership skills. So competence. Next one is courage. And everybody expects a leader to be courageous and make big, bold you know, decisions and things like that. But what the people I researched told me is we want a leader to be courageous enough to be vulnerable, to ask for help, which leads very well into the next one, which is communication. And again, they said, you know, of course, we expect our leader to be a good communicator. But what we really want, and I think this is a skill run that people can learn, and it's very helpful, is to be a great communicator as a leader, you must ask thoughtful and focused questions and be an intense listener. And that's definitely something that can be built up. Be insanely curious. The next one is collaboration. Another word we could use here is your emotional quotient, your ability to get along well with other people. Because if you're smart and bright and talented, but you don't work well with other people, you don't have empathy or genuine connection with them, can't be a leader. The next one is compassion. And that is understanding that the folks you lead have a life outside of whatever you're doing. And they have difficulties and struggles and opportunities, and you want to be there to support them and help them and show them compassion. And then the last one, which is one that I think really goes well with what you're teaching and some of what I teach, is contribution. That after you've had a chance to be a leader for a while and you've acquired some level of authority and access to resources and notoriety and things of that nature, that you take that back and invest it in the people that you're leading in the organizations you're leading. And and the way I'd like to say it is, you must plant the seeds of trees under which you may never sit. So those are the seven things that people told me. And all of them are at some level skills-based. They are things you can learn or you can improve. That's really a great way to boil it down. If we can just remember it starts with a C, we can probably remember at least a few of them and that put us ahead of the game. There's something I've got to ask you as we near our time limit, but I mentioned early that, uh, you know, usually not only the smartest person in the room, but also the nicest. And I know this because you've been a mentor of mine. Does that come naturally to you? Or I really think it's very important and I've become really conscious of people who I respect. And the level of niceness really seems to make a difference in the way they resonate with me. And I'm just wondering, is that, is that a skill or is, are you just naturally nice? No, I'm not naturally nice at all. No, it's, it's um, thank you for asking that question. It was when I ran the first company I ran and I would lay awake at night worried about all the kids I had to put through college. I don't have kids, but all my employees did. And I woke up one night and realized that it was my job to serve them and to make them successful and to help them have successful lives and successful children and things of that nature. 
I quickly realized that if I was going to spend my life being of service, then it was best to, to have a genuine heart and try to help people. And there's a great Zig Ziglar quote. If you just help enough people get everything they want, you'll get everything you want. And also, there's an interesting thing. Because I travel so much, I live in hotels, and I realize that the people there are my family when I'm traveling. So, you know, one of the goals I have every day is to get up and make people smile. And it's for them, but it helps me. But the world is tough enough. Why, why not be a beacon of light and helpfulness and sincerity and gratitude? It just makes everything easier for everybody. And if you leave a good impression on people, again, not because you're trying to, it's just because that's the person you've become. It took work for me for a while. I'm very introverted and I don't really like people get along with them, even though I do professional speaking and, and coaching and stuff. So I really had to develop some empathy and curiosity about other people and find a way to do something for them that would make their life better. Well, I'm sure it's been very, very rewarding. And there's also some really good science to demonstrate that that makes a real difference on the development of the brain. And just like, you know, if you maintain a good activity level, if you continue to read and so on, there are some real benefits of being positive in terms of, of brain growth and development. As I just implied, we're running out of time. I can't promise I won't ask you back sometime because I still have more questions, but... The answer is yes, whenever you need me. Great. Well, see, I, I knew you were nice. But, uh, <laughs> but you've given us a lot of information. If somebody wants to learn more about you or read something about you, or if there are programs that you offer, or if, uh, as I'm sure some of the listeners may be in a position to hire you as a consultant or coach or speaker, how does somebody know where to find you? Thanks for the plug, man. I appreciate that. <laughs> Two things. My website is very simple, johnspence.com. There's a lot of information there. I would encourage people, if you're interested in business, and in leadership, I have a newsletter that comes out every two weeks. And as I mentioned, I read for about an hour, hour and a half every morning. When I find an article or a blog or something I really like that's you know impressive to me, I post it to my Twitter account. And my newsletter is artificial intelligence driven. So if you open it, Ron, it looks at which articles you open, how long you read them, what you seem to focus on. And then the AI continues to take out of the hundreds of articles that I post just the ones that are most interesting to you. So it can constantly makes it more and more custom to you. So you can sign up for that through my website, my blog and that, totally free. And then the other thing is, is my email is john at johnspence.com. And if any of your listeners have a question or a concern or an issue or something, I answer all my own emails. I get several hundred a day, so it might take me a few days to get back to you. But if there's a way that I can help you and answer a question, and what I always like to say, if I don't have the answer, I can find somebody who does. So please don't hesitate to send me a personal email if I can be of service to you in any way. Great. Well, my listeners owe me big time for getting this high-priced guy in front of them with all the advice. It seems like you held back nothing. I really, really appreciate your being with me. I've considered you to be a, a mentor of mine. I'm very proud to have the connection, and I'm very glad we could bring it to our podcast listeners. 
And for the listeners, remember, this is one of a series of podcasts, all interesting guests, and many of them with very unique perspectives. So again, my website is www.thementalhealthgym.com, and I hope you'll download this and the other podcast episodes, rate them, subscribe, and be listening for the next one to learn probably not as much as you learned today, but you'll learn a whole lot from it. So take care and thanks again, John. My honor, my pleasure, Ron.